December 1924, Marion Moore releases her first official collection of poems, called Observations, while the film industry begins to grow. What audiences are most flocking to is an adventure film called The Seahawk. Caught up in this action at sea, you are thrown overboard. You don't drown. You seem to wade through the sea like a fish, until you reach another ship. You huddle up for warmth and try to reconcile this double vision. Under a splintered mast, torn from the ship and cast near her hull, a stumbling shepherd found, embedded in the ground, a seagull of lapis lazuli, a scarab of the sea, with wings spread, curling its coral feet, parting its beak to greet men long dead. So writes Marianne Moore in A Talisman, the fourth of 54 poems in her 1924 collection, Observations, her first official collection of her poems, spanning back several years, and as the title Observations suggests, you have a lot of striking images throughout the collection, but outside of what the title suggests, there's a lot going on with sound and line structure, and sort of citational style where you have things in quotes, and Moore is thinking very seriously, very deeply through a lot of very weighty philosophic and social ideas, and something very recurring, which isn't in all of the poems, but you could see in this example, for instance, is a strong interest in the sea in particular, culminating in three relatively long poems at the end of the collection, Marriage, An Octopus, and then Sea Unicorns and Land Unicorns. So I'd like to present some thoughts on this particular obsession with the sea and what it has to do with Moore's philosophic ideas and poetic interests, but also bringing it back and thinking about Moore's vision in terms of the book's release in December 1924. And so we look at the films of that year, right, and this is relatively early in the history of film. The first feature-length film to feature talking doesn't come out for a few more years, but Marianne Moore's observations are occurring at any rate alongside filmic observations. And so we look at the highest grossing film of that year is The Seahawk, directed by Frank Lloyd and released in June of 1924. And so this is the number one movie of the year. This is what got movie-going audiences really excited. And so the story here is you have these two brothers. They're both sort of competing over this woman one of them is engaged to. The one who is not engaged gets caught up in a duel that he shouldn't be involved in. He had promised the woman he wouldn't be dueling people, and so it's unwitnessed in the middle of the night, and he accidentally ends up killing the other person. And so now legally it looks like a murder. There's not much of a way getting around that. And so what he does is he frames his brother, and it sort of solves two problems. One is it clears his own name, and it helps get the brother out of the picture, and now he gets to pursue this woman. But where it gets interesting and where the film really starts to pick up is that the man who had actually done the crime, Lionel, gets his brother Oliver out of the way by paying someone to capture Oliver into slavery, and so Oliver is captured off at sea and brought onto the slave galley, and so now he's gone for a very long time, and everyone assumes that he fleed because he was guilty and he knew he was guilty, and so he just left. And of course, since he's gone and he has no way to contact his home, he has no way to clear his name or even really know exactly what people are thinking about him. And this is one of the exciting things about the sea and the history of narrative is that it's outside of our normal experience, even though it's so central to global politics and history for so long. In literature, this is the Odyssey, for instance. In the real world, it's imperialism, warfare, slave trade, 
all of these things. And what we see in the film in particular is this look at the slave galleys and what blurs with the sea and the sort of imagination into this lawless outside of the very formal civilization of knights and duels and laws and so on in England. Of course, the whole premise of the story is that Lionel shouldn't have been dueling. He kills someone and then he sells out his own brother. He takes on his brother's fiance, his own wife-to-be. What we start with and that sort of radicalizes Oliver in his quest for revenge is that he's on this Christian slave ship and so he's being treated harshly in the hot sun all day, rowing along, working hard, being whipped. And so he decides that all these people are his enemy. He declares a curse on all those who call themselves Christians and countenance such cruelty. He says, if these be Christian, then I do call God to witness. I renounce the name. And again, you know, this is a silent movie, so this is revealed through these little cards popping up here and there. It's an interesting historical perspective because, you know, part of what was being employed persuasively in ending slavery in America, for instance, is, you know, this these similar calls to this idea that this isn't Christian activity. People who would act with such cruelty are not behaving Christ-like. Now we're here in the early 1920s and you sort of make the audience feel good morally with this appeal to like, you know, we don't do this because we're good Christian people. And then you, you also hold yourself up over the sort of other group of people. But then there's a simplification in the story for entertainment's sake, where basically Oliver goes and he becomes this pirate king and he breaks free and he assembles this small army of people and they're they're ruling the seas. And this allows him to eventually return to England and apply this force into the estate. And so this is the sort of story that had been very popular for a long time and, you know, popular novels. And so now as you're trying to develop out this film industry, you know, this is one of the things that really takes off where you get to see now on screen the ship and the sea and the swashbuckling and you get to see, you know, the all these costumes, both the knights and Algiers. So let's put that into the background for right now and let's look at what Marianne Moore is doing simultaneously with these images of the sea through poetry. And to start with really situating ourselves in the sea or to understand the extent to which that's even possible, let's jump ahead to her poem, A Grave. Man looking into the sea, taking the view from those who have as much right to it as you have to yourself. It is human nature to stand in the middle of a thing, but you cannot stand in the middle of this. The sea has nothing to give but a well-excavated grave. The firs stand in a procession, each with an emerald turkey foot at the top, reserved as their contours, saying nothing. Prussian, however, is not the most obvious characteristic of the sea. The sea is a collector, quick to return a rapacious look. There are others besides you who have worn that look, whose expression is no longer a protest. The fish no longer investigate them, for their bones have not lasted. Men lower nets, unconscious of the fact that they are desecrating a grave, and row quickly away, the blades of the oars moving together like the feet of water spiders, as if there were no such thing as death. The wrinkles progress among themselves in a phalanx, beautiful under networks of foam and fade breathlessly while the sea rustles in and out of the seaweed. The birds swim through the air at top speed, emitting catcalls as heretofore 
the tortoise shell scourges about the feet of the cliffs in motion beneath them, and the ocean under the pulsation of lighthouses and noise of bell buoys advances as usual, looking as if it were not that ocean in which dropped things are bound to sink, in which if they turn and twist it is neither with volition nor consciousness. In this poem, a man looking into the sea, which in a loose sense is the position of the reader of various more poems, is warned, the sea has nothing to give but a well-excavated grave. This may seem to be a claim that the sea has nothing to offer, either in insight or aesthetic charm, but the common is to a man literally looking into the physical sea, which is a direct, accessible look that is not what more gives in a representation. If something is excavated, it is often because there is something significant there, such as in archaeology, and more is quite archaeological in our use of quotations, which span history and use everyday items such as notebooks, the way archaeologists consider tools, to provide insight into life. In human imagination, the sea has been both a symbol of danger and of life, of the origin of life as well as the origin of all things. While that line may seem like Moore is dismissing observation of the sea, he is only dismissing shallow observation. The tragedy that the poem presents is that people do not recognize the fact that the sea is a grave for some, taking it solely for its aesthetic value. The last line comments, if they twist and turn is neither with volition nor consciousness, which is accusing the man looking into the sea of being of such a sensibility that he would view a dead body moving around in the flow of the sea the way one would view a dance, rather than view that the truth is that he's really dead. Before calling the sea a grave, Moore writes, it is human nature to stand in the middle of a thing, but you cannot stand in the middle of this. Rather than hollowness and death, that last line suggests the sea as a powerful place for sublimity and transcendence. More literally, however, she is noting the shallowness of the man's observation. He can only stand on the edge of the water, looking at its nearest and topmost part. The sea gives an insight into the life of things, but since human limitations prevent us from taking it all in through mere presence, additional insight such as through the imagination is needed. One cannot stand in the middle of the sea, we can only access it through these sort of tools of ships and so on, but the way we interact with it tends to be very surface oriented, and when you dig deep into it through oars, through nets, you're pulling things up to the surface and you're not immersed within in that space. And so this leads us into her poem, The Fish, in this collection. But I also want to jump back into the film for a second. Something which undergirds the power of the sea, both in the man being enslaved and in being the pirate king, and then in later being attacked from outside forces, is the very fragile positioning of our position in this space where it's all held up so loosely and can be, you know, sunk so quickly that if you're thrown overboard, you will be that body which sinks, which turns and twists, but not with volition or consciousness, but just because of the seas turning where that you get absorbed into the swirls of that space and brought into the dynamics there, which are so outside of our own position. But there's a back and forth going on here where even if those watching this popular film and seeing these sorts of very shallow at times depictions, futilely looking into the sea, there's an element that what excites them on a deep level is also in some ways what really excites more about the sea and the way in which this really the poem works on exciting that same sort of imagination and as this literary work 
even though it's on a very different register, it's emerging within this long history of literature and other narratives about the sea, which very often were these very popular depictions of adventures at sea, struggles, mutinies, betrayal, quest for revenge, and so on. And Moore takes that energy of hundreds of years of very real importance of the sea and interest in the sea from people from all sorts of backgrounds from all sorts of reasons, and uses her poetic style to really situate us in this space which, as we saw in a grave, is actually quite alien and hostile to us in many ways. And so we look at the fish, which is something I you know, really recommend you know pulling up and, and reading on your own at some point because it has a very distinct visual style. So, you know, each stanza starts with this one syllable word, then this other short line, then an indentation, two lines, and then a fifth line indented further. And the sort of pairings that are indented along the same way are rhyming. And so there's a really nice sound and rhythm to it, but it also moves in this sort of wave-like structure. And so the poem goes, the fish wade through black jade of the crow blue mussel shells one keeps adjusting the ash heaps opening and shutting itself like an injured fan the barnacles which encrust the side of the wave cannot hide there for the submerged shafts of the sun split like spun glass move themselves with spotlight swiftness into the crevices in and out illuminating the turquoise sea of bodies the water drives a wedge of iron through the iron edge of the cliff whereupon the stars pink rice grains ink bespattered jellyfish crabs like green lilies and submarine toadstools slide each on the other. All external marks of abuse are present on this defiant edifice. All the physical features of accident, lack of cornice, dynamite grooves, burns, and hatchet strokes, these things stand out on it. The chasm side is dead. Repeated evidence has proved that it can live on what cannot revive its youth. The sea grows old in it. The poem does not give a static view of the sea, even by using imaginative power to thrust itself into the middle, but moves the reader through the sea. There are two senses to the opening line of the poem. The fish wade through black jade as this descriptive image, and while it is apparent that the title is being presented as the first line, the first two lines of the poem itself function also as this sort of command for the reader to wade through the black jade. We're then guided through this series of images very deep in the sea in this perspective that we don't normally see in these sea voyage narratives which are so popular where you know you see people on ship and this is what people who have been out at sea have experienced is you're on a ship you can't stand in the middle of this but by situating us in the perspective of these fish we get to move through the crow blue mussel shells the ash heaps the barnacles the shafts of sun split like spun glass the crevices, the turquoise sea of bodies, the wedge of iron, the iron edge of the cliff, the pink rice grains, the ink bespattered jellyfish, the crabs like green lilies, and the submarine toadstools sliding each on the other. And this is all quite beautiful, but you know, what's the payoff? And so immediately the connection between the fish and humans is made, even if only recognized in the way the reader is forced into the perspective of the fish moving through the sea, not only with them, but as they would move through it. And so simultaneously humans, through the role of the reader, are forced to move through the sea like fish, and fish are made to move through it like humans. This is essential to recognize in order to understand that the hardened, damaged landscape of the turquoise sea of bodies is also our landscape, and in 
cities, you have these sea of bodies moving through crevices with wedges of iron driven through cliffs. More here than is presenting our world in terms of the sea, people in terms of sea life, and our navigation of the world also in such terms. This presents a fluid notion of the world. Though the world we navigate isn't literally composed of water, it has an aquatic character to it, which is not apparent but is revealed through a poetic inspection. More works to transform her readers from observers into fish so that they may navigate that fluid world, which is not the world of the senses, but perhaps the more accurate nature of the world. Seas, being a familiar part of the world and thus contributing to a common theoretical frame, are used not only as an analogy for experience, but an aspect of the world which, if focused on, reveals a larger process by which the world operates, but which is normally concealed. The short version of Marianne Moore's poem titled Poetry is quite famous, where she says, you know, I too dislike it. But also quite famous in the poetry world is the end of the longer version, where she goes on to say, all these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however. When dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry, nor till the poets among us can be literalists of the imagination, above insolence and triviality, and can present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads in them, shall we have it. In the meantime, if you demand on one hand the raw materials of poetry in all its rawness, and that which is on the other hand genuine, then you are interested in poetry. That observation of the sea is itself imaginary. We can't actually inhabit that perception, but the toads that we find in them are quite real. And we see some element as, of that as well, even within the sort of fantastical, spectacularized film, The Seahawk, where that merely tries to excite the imagination. Marian Moore is really trying to explore the imagination, how it works and what really drives our interest, what is sort of implicit in a lot of these ideas. The opening text of the Seahawk, and these intertitles are written by Walter Anthony, reads, The sea that breaks today on England's wave-lashed coast thunders majestically its age-old songs of dim forgotten yesterdays, and one's a song of brave bold days when Queen Elizabeth reigned, and every breeze brought tidings of England's growing might. And it's a film that's really rooted in the way in which the sea struck and divides these sort of different nations, these different groups. And so you have one caption, for instance, our love is God's gift, it will endure, though men part us and the seas divide. And then later introducing Spain, that proud and powerful kingdom ruled these waters. And that conflict between England and Spain is what allows them first to be captured and enslaved in this Spanish galleon, and then later transported even further from home. And we watch this whole drama play out, him against his brother, him against the Spanish galleon, him as this pirate king expanding his reach and his power, him capturing back his previous fiance, and then him coming up against the English who still think that he was the murderer. And in the end, all is restored. He and Lady Rosamond marry, their estates are joined, and we see that they have a kid, and we see that one of the chiefest members of his crew that he had put together at sea is now telling the kid the stories about their adventures at sea and 
the brave battles and so on, bringing it back to this opening image of the song of brave, bold days and this continuity of the sea that breaks today on England's wave-lashed coast thunders majestically its age-old song of dim, forgotten yesterdays. And so there's something really exciting to be sitting there and watching this film play out where it's not just this one exciting adventure, but it's the culmination of this space that is this constant presence through the rule of Queen Elizabeth, through the rule of Spain, through all of these sort of conflicts, all of these human dramas for thousands and thousands of years. And this is what we find in that poem, A Talisman, that I opened with, where we see the ripped and torn mast of the ship, and then there's that seagull embedded in the ground, but it's not an actual seagull. Moore uses this enjambment, this stanza break, to really shift it around, and then it's a seagull of lapis lazuli, a scarab of the sea. It's this treasure that got buried, but what is even further beneath that, this one, you know, signpost of some adventure gone wrong, this ship sunk, is beneath that is that the image of the seagull is parting its beak to greet men long dead. We partly understand this history, and there's a sort of sublimity to the sea, but then it also has this draw. We romanticize it a bit, and Moore is giving this different vision, which is not just a sort of buzzkill, you know, actually it's not great at all, but is showing its greatness in these very vast grand terms with a very serious philosophic weight. At the end of the poem, Doc rats, she writes, there is the sea moving the bulkhead with its horse strength and the multiplicity of rudders and propellers, the signals, shrill, questioning, peremptory, diverse, the wharf cats and the barge dogs. It is easy to overestimate the value of such things. One does not live in such a place from motives of expediency, but because to one who has been accustomed to it, shipping is the most interesting thing in the world. And you look at the box office numbers from the year that this poetry collection comes out, and it plays out, you know, people really want to see some version of that world, but you also might want to think about what is is really going on in the space and how do we understand it in this imaginative capacity versus this historical reality versus everything else going on and so you look at these two visions side by side and you get this really interesting look at these sort of imaginations of the sea in both popular film and in the poetry of the time this really sort of great work which I highly recommend people read through you know whether you get a copy of of observations or the collected poems of Marianne Moore. Definitely recommend people read as much of her work as you can. And I'll leave you with one last short poem from the collection, this really incredible two-part poem, which perhaps may entice you to actually go and pick up and read through some of this Marianne Moore. An Egyptian pulled glass bottle in the shape of a fish. Here we have thirst and patience from the first, and art as in a wave held up for us to see in its essential perpendicularity, not brittle but intense, the spectrum, spectacular and nimble animal, the fish, whose scales turn aside the sun's sword with their polish. 